was in the one room, one, how could not be described as a flat, just one furnished room of Quentin Crisp, a most singular man in, in London. He has been known in many parts of the community, uh, in some of the communities, particularly in the Chelsea area, for half a century. In a moment, the conversation with Mr. Crisp after we hear from Marty Robinson. On a farm near the quiet, dusty town of Campsville in southern Illinois, a dramatic story is beginning to unfold. A story about people who lived in the lower Illinois Valley 8,000 years before Christ. And a group of young archaeologists, scientists, college and high school students who are trying to learn more about them. In Sunday's Chicago Tribune magazine, writer Clay Gowran takes you along on their expedition, 28 feet straight down. You'll find out why this particular farm is so rich in fossils and artifacts from the age of ancient man, and why these young people think the smallest discovery is worth all the backbreaking effort and tedium. The head of the expedition, an associate professor at Northwestern, says the reports from these scientists should give us a clearer picture of archaic man, and hopefully provide answers to things which we don't understand. Read about the search for treasures in Illinois mud, in Town on the Edge of Time, by Clay Gowran. It's in Sunday's Chicago Tribune magazine. I'm seated here in the flat of a most singular man. Uh, my friend Dennis Mitchell showed me a film of a person, a human, called Quentin Crisp. I'm sitting now, Mr. Crisp. I wouldn't say he spoke of my, of my tape recorder as posh. I would say that Mr. Crisp's apartment right now, one room flat, is not particularly posh, but it's certainly, as they would say, lived in. <laughs> I'm thinking, Mr. Crisp, in watching this film, you describe where you live as a ward. That's right, yes. I described it as a ward and as a prison cell. But it's also a sort of kind of asylum. It's also an escape. And um, as I've never been able to get hold of them, um, fortune or life or fate or any of these things, um, I've had to use a, a retreating method of living my life. That is to say, I have had to move into a cell and then make it a home because I've no other way of doing it. You have no other way? Why do you call this a cell or an asylum? Well, because it's what I'm left with. You see, I've lived a life where all I've ever been able to do is just lurch forward whenever I saw a chink of light anywhere. When people say to me, why did you choose to do this or that? It doesn't make sense, because I've never chosen anything. All I've ever done is just think I could do that. I mean, all the jobs I've had were the jobs I could get, because that's been my whole life. The people I know are the people who weren't ashamed to know me. The places where I, I've been in are the places where the landlady didn't turn me out. And so, of course, as soon as I arrived here, where I've been for 30 years, it was, it was absolutely marvelous from my point of view. You're, you've been in this one-room flat for 30 years. I see a, a gas plate, or charred teak kettle. Uh, you have a, a variety of all your possessions, all your life belongings here in this all room. All my life belongings are in this one room. Your trousers are somewhat ragged. Your hair is gray. You say all you have are your friends who would not be ashamed to know you. Why should they be ashamed to know you? Well, this is because I'm a self-confessed homosexual. In England, there are very few. I now realize from having been in touch with Americans since my book came out, that uh, homosexuality in America is organized. Um, on one occasion, some society which is devoted entirely to homosexuals took over a theater so that all its members could see the same show on the same day. Now, in England, you couldn't get four homosexuals into the theater. Do you mean to tell me that the homosexual is freer in America than in England? Right now, there are, there are a number of organizations. One is called the Gay Liberation Front, which is quite remarkable, in which the young homosexuals, much more militant uh, than their uh, elder friends, mm. who are somewhat hiding or ashamed, yeah. whereas the young are much more militant, and they say that I am he. Mm. I am what I am. You mean in England that they're less open than... Oh, much less open much less. You could not get uh, a homosexual society going here. You can have a club which is taken over by homosexuals, and then the proprietor makes up his mind what to do, whether to turn the first half dozen of them out, or whether to let them come and let the place become 
known as a homosexual club to other homosexuals. You think this is a hangover from the Oscar Wilde case? No, I don't think it's a hangover from the Oscar Wilde case. Um, I think it's uh, what we're left with. It's the English temperament. You see, in England, they don't even like sex, long, long before we got to <laughs> peculiar sex. And this, this is, um, in, in France, they regard almost all English people as homosexual because they speak so badly of women. I mean, after all, in, in America, a, a woman is called honey and sugar. But in England, she's called old girl. I mean, who wants to be an old girl? I think things are somewhat changing, though, they're not attitudes towards sex. Whether, whether uh, heterosexual or homosexual, certainly heterosexual, things are changing, are they not, or am I wrong? Well, they appear to be changing. We appear to have moved into this famous permissive society. But we obviously haven't done any such thing, because um, th there was a magazine a little while back called Jeremy. On the first issue, or the second, there was a picture of a nude boy and a nude girl. Well, someone came to interview me on, a, on account of this magazine and said, what do you think of it? Well, it's a contradiction in terms. If sex were really permissive, you'd have to have two famous people nude on the cover. If you came from Japan, which I believe is a really permissive society, where mother and father and sister and daughter all bathe in the same pool together, naked, a, a Japanese gentleman would say, these two honorable people, who are they? And the answer is, there are any two people who take up their clothes for money. What interests me mostly in this conversation, Mr. Crisp, is you yourself, your life, study of loneliness, perhaps, or friendship, madness, what you call madness, and what you call sanity, because you describe this room and perhaps beginnings. Who, who is Quentin Crisp? Well, this is what they keep on asking me, of course, even though I've written a whole book devoted entirely to that subject. And there again, I'm not really, except in regard of my personal freedom, as I say, having come out into the open some 40 years ago and be, lived the life of a self-confessed homosexual. The rest of my life follows from that. I have the income that, you, that you, you, you've got left with after you've confessed this, because I can't get jobs. And you have the way of life that you're stuck with. I'm living in a room where the landlady didn't turn me out. And the clothes I have on are the clothes that somebody gave me. Because I'm never going to have any money. That's for certain. You mean to say that you're denied jobs on the basis of your homosexuality? Uh, no, I'm denied jobs because they c I can be seen to be homosexual. Um, you, could go, you could apply for a job, and when you'd gone, the interviewers could look at one another and say, I think he's queer. But what they don't like is that you can be seen to be queer. You Let's see? talk about that visibility, then that seeing to be queer. You yourself, from early childhood on, is that it? Well, from childhood on, I was homosexual, of course. That is to say, I lived in this dream of being a woman. If you'd asked me uh, when I was young what I wanted to be, uh, heaven knows what I would have said, but it, I wouldn't have said I wanted to be an engine driver, and I wouldn't have said that I wanted to be uh, an admiral on a ship. You see, the fact is, when I was young, all I really wanted, of course, was to be a chronic invalid, because then I would have been able to live at home forever, I would have been special, I would have been looked after. Well, this I couldn't bring off, because I was one of four children, and therefore the attention was divided between all of us. And, of course, this I never, I never forgave, because I, I only understand myself. I, 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 I make no comparison between myself and other people. Therefore, if you say you've got a sh fair share of what's going, this is no answer. In the book, it actually says a fair share of anything is starvation diet to an egomaniac. And this is true. And now, of course, I'm on, I'm on the way down again, because I'm now 61, and I live in a world where nothing I could do or say would demonstrate that I was homosexual, since there are people on scaffoldings, mending buildings, who are afraid of getting their pearls caught in the scaffolding. Well, you're talking now about the new uh, male attire. Yes. I mean, there's nothing you could wear which would make you seem freakish on King's Road. That's for certain. This is rather, I want to ask you about your dream of being a chronic invalid. Before that, King's Road is where trendy things are happening, yeah. and you live in Chelsea, and now you're saying the nature of style itself and design makes your appearance not too unique, does it? That's right. Now, my appearance is not in any way unique. It doesn't prevent me being made fun of, because there's something about um, a total homosexual which is always noticeable. 
to other homosexuals or even to ordinary people. Also, when I'm in the street, I wear makeup. And this very few young men, however bizarre they've decided to be, do that. Very few of them. But there is something you said in Dennis's film of you, in which you said some of the young, even those very mod, are disturbed by you. Mm. Because they, even though they wear beads and have a rather bizarre for the conventional male attire, they make it quite clear that they're masculine. Whereas you come along with the same attire and somehow that disturbs them. Yes, I think it does because it reflects on them. If my appearance leads people to think I'm homosexual, then their appearance, their velvet trousers and their lace shirts may lead people to think they are homosexual. That my hair is shorter than their, theirs is. But they don't want any um, overtone from homosexuality to rub off on them. You saying, just, I want, this isn't a question, a matter of question and answer, Mr. Crisp. It's rather you yourself reflecting and talking. I'm simply here. I am a camera. I am a tape recorder, let us say. So when you were a small boy and you had this feeling you were afraid of the outside world, you wanted to be the chronic invalid, so your parents could take care of you. You wouldn't have to face that which was outside, is that it? This is a huge part of it. First of all, to, uh, to gather together all my mother's attention by hook or by crook, even if it led to her disliking me. And secondly, to avoid the outer world because I felt so totally inadequate. And this never left me because I've, I've never been able to do anything. I've ne I, the only job I've ever had where I understood what I was doing was being a model. Otherwise than that, I just was put into jobs by my father. Um, he tried to find me jobs, but I couldn't even get them. Then other people found me jobs, and I did them as well as I could. But everyone knew that I was hopeless. I'm not equipped to live. And this marks a lot of, of homosexuals, but of effeminate homosexuals. You say you are not equipped to live. Mm. What does that mean? That means that all those things that other people could, can do almost by nature, um, I somehow could never do. I never learnt the proper answers to perfectly simple questions. Like what, for example? Well, I should think I was at least 20 before someone um, congratulated me on having passed some exam or other. And I think it was my mother said, when people congratulate you, you're supposed to thank them. And I thought, well, now I know that. That's the answer to one thing. Because before that, I just stood and looked at the floor. As soon as people spoke to me, as soon as people made jokes, I never had a string of jokes with which to reply. Um, I never had any back answers to give. I knew absolutely no way of coping with people. Was it a fear of growing up? Was that it? If you had to grow up, you had to leave the home and go out and go If away? I had to grow up, I would have to, comparison would be made between me and real people. You see, while I was a child, uh, more or less everything is forgiven. But when you grow up, you're not. They can see you're the same age as other people with the same education. Why aren't you forging ahead? Why aren't you? Um, amassing uh, property, gifts, anything you like. And this I couldn't do. And as I say, I was 30 before I became a model in the schools. Until that time, how did you live? I had jobs in advertising. I do, did drawings for advertising. Um, I did uh, titles for movies, the lettering that goes at the beginning and the end of the movies. Um, I wrote a book on window dressing, though I've never done any. And, you see, I, I, I had the jobs, what you might call the odd jobs. In terms of advertising, I was a little man round the corner, somebody who would do it cheaper and quicker and worse. Well, that, of course, has gone forever now, because now, if you sit at a meeting of people in advertising, they are wondering how to spend the money that's being given them. So that any idea of doing it cheaper and quicker and worse is over. You've got things, uh, ways of doing it so that it costs more. So now, of course, I don't do any of that, apart from the fact, of course, as you grow older, your eyesight gets less, your hand gets more shaky, and so in the end, you have to leave it. You, uh, then money and you were never very close. No, I've never earned more than 12 pounds a week in the whole of my life, and never for long. And over the book, I made a small amount of money, but even that wouldn't be enough to, to change my life. It's just money I can cling on to until I need it most. But I've always, I'm always at the losing end. This is absolutely inevitable. 
why is it never that you always you you that you are always at the losing end? Well, I'm on the outsider. You see, ordinary people, if they get into a job and they can't even do it, they will be in England. They will be moved along by time itself. They will just be pushed forward on a sort of conveyor belt of time until they hold a fairly good job in the same firm. But if you're on the outside, you're just clinging on. And the slightest rocking of the boat, you fall into the sea. When did you first realize that you were on the outside? I should think when I was about 18 or 19 or 20. But I'd never heard the word homosexual used then. So I imagined I was the only one. This now is some almost half century. It wasn't 40 years ago or so. It was 40 years ago. I'm now 61. Uh, yes, about 40 years ago. And since the subject had never been mentioned to me, I didn't know it existed. Um, now everybody knows, of course, because any word which has the word sex mixed up in it will be mentioned sooner how, or later. How did, how did your parents feel? Well, you? my father tried to behave as though the whole thing was sort of um, non-existent. Um, he waited for it to pass. It never did, so he never spoke about it. He tried not to speak to me as far as he could. My mother alternately um, indulged me and threatened me with the outer world. Um, I don't think it goes on nowadays, but in a time gone by, every parent said to its child, you can't go on like that when you go out into the world. And they said it to me. Nobody ever said, I suppose, when you grow up, you'll meet people as mad as yourself and you'll get on all right with them. These were the words I waited to hear. And since I expected so very little from my life, you don't have to use the word success or failure because I never expected anything. You say your parents threatened you with the outer world. Mm. They threatened me with a future. What would I do when the future began? And of course I didn't know because I realized I was never going to be able to get on with people and sort of get onto the old boy network and have jobs and be handed from one job to another, which is the way most people get on. About the old boy network? Now, of course, I'm on the, I, I'm on the outside still, but there are more people with me on the outside because all outsiders meet. So there is, in a sense, an underground, perhaps an overground of outsiders. Now, yes, I think there is. I think there always was. But I think you're a long time getting at it because the outsiders are fewer. If they were more, they would be on the inside and the situation would be reversed. So that if you live in a big city for a lifetime, you're bound to get to know people. And all the people you get to know are not homosexuals, but they're all outsiders. They're all people with nothing to lose from knowing you. Now the question is, outside what? Well, this is what everyone says, because other people say the outsiders are trying to get into where we are. But this isn't so, in fact. This is uh, just an amusing answer. There is obviously a whole structure, I should think everywhere, but certainly in England, which is supported by people accepting a certain number of conventions and living and dressing and moving and speaking in that way. And that is a structure which supports them and makes sure that they have jobs and places to live in and so on. And that is what I am outside. Now, who decides? I remember in the beginning of Dennis Mitchell's film, you were at the window looking outside mm. as the camera crew was coming in, and outside is normality, mm. Now, who decides what is normality? Well, there's no decision, of course, really, because there are no edges. That, that also goes back to, the, to 40 years ago, because 40 years ago there were thought to be certain people who were homosexual, and they were a separate race of people. And this, of course, is no longer so. We now realize that men are not heterosexual or homosexual, they're just sexual. And this we didn't know in the beginning, or I didn't know anyway, and certainly my parents didn't know. I don't think my mother ever really understood homosexuality at all, but, and my father would only know what a male prostitute was. He wouldn't have known anything else. He knew that. He knew that. He had to know that because he had lived in London and been about, and he, he had at least to know that. Did you practice that for a time? Yes, I've been what's called on the game, but it's, there again, I was a total failure because you've got to be very sharp and you've got to be very tough and you've got to have the nervous stamina of an ox and all these things I failed to have. 
so that even a life of sin I couldn't make it go on. <laughs> you say you couldn't make go even in a life of sin. Mm. You failed even at that. Even at that. And the purpose, I suppose, of male prostitution is, with, for that matter, prostitution as we know it, was to make a dollar, I imagine. To make a dollar. And, of course, in those days, if you made ten shillings out of one man, you were lucky. Um, I imagine that the things would be different now. But, of course, prostitution has now gone out in England because sex is everywhere. We're talking now about money, aren't we, at the moment? Money. We haven't talked about love, have we? Well, no. That I don't think I could have made a go of either, even if I'd tried. But I recognised that love was out, as far as I was concerned, right from the beginning. Why was that? Well, I don't think I could have coped. Who could I set up a house with, set up a flat with? It, was, it would have been too difficult. What would have happened to him? He would have been reproached from morning till night. It would have been a sacrifice too great for anyone to make. Because wherever I live, the whole neighborhood knows I'm there. Ah, that's it. We should point out, perhaps, that that Mr. Crisp, Quentin Crisp, dresses quite bizarrely. You did in the past. Mm. Today, it's less less recognizable as that. But you were always... Uh, you, you did this unashamedly, because mm. you did. As a result, you say, acquaintance of yours might feel... Any acquaintance had to put up with quite a lot, because to walk with me through the streets was to get anything from abuse to definite attack. So that, well, you could, you could fix up um, an affair with somebody in such a way that they only came to visit you and they didn't live with you. Well, these affairs always fall apart in the end. I would say even among normal people, they fall apart. Among homosexuals, where a lifetime of two people living together is absolutely remarkable, and all their friends remark on it from morning till night. Then, in your case, uh, walking down the street, is that why you're in the room so often? That's why I'm here, because being outside is such a fag. It demands so much of me. What is it now? You look outside that window, you hardly leave this room. Um, I leave the room to go to work or to visit friends. I never um, go to a pub because there may be trouble. So I never go to a pub unless it's a bohemian-type pub in Soho where I know the people and know I could get on all right. But I would never go into a pub just to see who was there. You say there may be trouble. Have you been physically attacked? Oh, often. Later, less, of course, now. I still have appointments with fear over the telephone. Since I was broadcast, I've had a, a phone call every hour for a, for a week or two. You mean these are abusive calls? Yes. Hostile phone calls saying, You're queer. I'll kill you. Um, people ringing up and then ringing off again. Now, who do you think these people are who make these calls? Well, I think they're, uh, sad to say, to disillusion you, I think they're the permissive society, because I think they're all young. Now, after the broadcast, if an irate colonel had rang me up and said, how dare you inflict your opinions and your appearance on us, um, this would have been fair enough. I would then have referred them to the people who made the movie and said, complain to them. But these are young people. Now, who are totally permissive. Now, wait, perhaps let's, let's just uh, dwell on this moment and say permissive. Who, these are young men who call you, right? Uh, all, all women, either. All women, too. Now, why do you think they've called you? Why have they gone to the trouble to call you? Well, I can't really imagine. I can't really understand it because it's no good ringing me up and saying you're queer because the whole program states nothing else. Is it because there's insecurity in them themselves, perhaps? Not quite certain who or what they are? that they do this, the fact that it does something, cause some turmoil in them, perhaps, without their recognition? Um, no, I wouldn't say so. I would say the young are very hostile um, to the world, and particularly to older people, because they actually, they actually speak of your age as though it were a disfigurement. Are you telling me now that young people, the young we talk about, the young today, mm. are those who are most hostile to you? Oh, yes. But they would be hostile to anyone of my age to start with, because they're hostile to their parents and they're hostile to their teachers. Then on top of that, they've got someone dressed in the same way that they dress, whom they can see perfectly well is over 60. So then they're even more annoyed. Someone who has taken up their badges, their uniform, their way of going on. But this has always been your badge. Yes, your this uniform. they don't know. Yeah. To them, I'm merely the oldest teenager in the world. Let's go back. When you were young, when you were a young homosexual mm. and you dressed bizarrely, before your hair turned grey, you was red, was mm. it not? Were you not abused, attacked then? Oh, by yes. those who today would be your contemporaries? Oh, yes, all the time. Abused, attacked, made fun of. 
This I expected. I didn't know it would be as bad as it was. I assume, anyone assumes in England that if they wear a bizarre appearance, that they will be made fun of. But it was worse than I imagined, because I was um, followed by crowds in the streets so that the traffic couldn't get by. So amazing, was it? Well, now this doesn't happen, and I haven't been attacked physically in years. Well, then, then perhaps, despite these calls you got from the young, I'm not defending the young, I'm mm. merely trying to explain something mm. to myself. There were days when you were followed by crowds in the streets. When was this? Oh, this was in uh, the 30s. The 30s. What Can you recreate at the moment situation? Do you recall? Well, I got, you see, it's very difficult for anyone who uh, doesn't remember such early times to, to get used to it. No man ever wore anything except a dark suit out of doors. To wear suede shoes was to be under suspicion. You, you, you had to search your appearance for any sign of effeminacy. I can remember someone actually saying to my brother, who was dead normal, people say that I take care of my appearance. And that, he said, because he felt it was an unkind remark to have, for anyone to have made. So that that world where the women were totally different from the men, the word boyish was used of the women, but of course it didn't mean boyish, no one ever mistook a girl for a boy in those days. Now you can't tell the difference. If you find them young enough, which I do in the schools, mm -hmm. and they're 17, well the ones who lose their nerve grow beards, because you simply can't tell which is which. But they know they're not homosexual, and they don't like any suggestion that they are. I want to come back to those days when the crowds followed you. Mm -hmm. Well, um, this was chiefly in the West End of London, in the heart of London. And um, if I was there, one or two would follow me, and then other people would wonder what they were following, and the people at the back in the end certainly couldn't see who I was. The police had to disperse the crowd. The police had to fight their way through the crowd and say, go away, there's nothing to look at, etc., etc., and get them to move on. This didn't, of course, happen every day, but it happened quite a lot. What was the police attitude toward you? That I was a nuisance. But um, I, it was years before I was actually arrested. It was during the war that I was arrested. And this was, I think, simply because by that time I had exemption papers saying I was homosexual. So the police could stop you and say, can I see your identity card? Can I see your exemption papers? Let me understand this now. You carry ID papers, exemption papers, Mm. You carry papers such as, say, a black does in South Africa. You That's carry right. papers. You did during the war. Everybody did. If you hadn't got your papers, you'd have to explain why you were still not in uniform. Oh, no, but you, I see. The papers to explain, therefore, the paper said you were homosexual. And this was the explanation of why I was not in the forces. I was not allowed into the forces because I was homosexual. Now, you might have papers saying that you were tubercular mm -hmm. had tuberculosis, but you had to carry, or have handy, your exemption papers, exempting you from um, a call-up, from being in the forces. Now, once they'd seen these, they thought they were safe to arrest you. But, of course, it's, you've still got to prove a case, uh, and it isn't easy. You've still got, you've just got the two policemen who say they saw you wander up and down the street, whether you did or not. They saw you speak to strange people, whether you did or not. Because no one's going to come forward and say they, that you never spoke to them. You see, it's, it's, there's no negative way of dealing with it. I'm talking with Quentin Crisp. We'll continue this conversation in a moment. This is with Quentin Crisp, who is known for a half a century or so in the area in which he lives. He hasn't left his room. It's been very rare occasions, the room in which I was interviewing him, this very dismally furnished room for some 30 years. Uh, he described the beginning as his uh, asylum from which he looks out, also his sanctuary. But in a moment, we'll continue the comp This was in London about a month ago. Uh, it was on the basis of having seen a film that my friend Dennis Mitchell had made of seven singular men, seven different people in London. And uh, Dennis Mitchell had suggested I see Quentin Crisp, and I did. And so we'll pick up the conversation after we hear from Marty Robinson. You're listening to Studs Turkle on WFMT in Chicago. The Chicago production of Hair is one year younger, and it's moved to the Blackstone Theater. The Blackstone was actually producer Michael Butler's first choice for a theater because of its greater intimacy and excellent acoustics. Roger Detmer of Chicago Today has urged his readers, if you haven't had the pleasure of hair, treat yourself, and if you have, go back again, unquote. 
and reports are that you see, hear, and feel more of hair than ever now at the Blackstone Theater. There's a show at 8.30 p.m. Monday through Friday. There's a Wednesday matinee at 2 p.m., and there are two performances of hair Saturday evenings at 6.30 and 10.30. Hair, the American tribal love rock musical, unfolds an unknown world for some, and both launches and reinforces an entire new life for many others. As their posters urge you, discover America, see hair. For ticket information, call the Blackstone Theater box office. The number is Central 6-8240. Studs? We pick up the London conversation with Quentin Crisp, telling the early days of his life. We continue as the, the conversation is free associative. You see, it's, it's, there's no negative way of dealing with it. I'm talking with Quentin Crisp, a very singular man, and we're sitting in his... How can I describe... How, can I, how would you describe your place? It's a bed sitting room in a boarding house, or a rooming house, as I expect it's called in America. Uh, all these, nearly all the rooms here are occupied by one person who lives in one room and makes use of a bathroom, etc., etc. And this is the room where I've all lived for 30 years. That's to say, since the very beginning of the war. And I've seen all these changes come and go. But fundamentally, the attitude toward um, known homosexuals is still the same. The permissive society makes no difference. Someone who is different is still looked upon as what is hostile, as enemy, as alien? I think this is part of it, and I think another part is that um, the charge is one of effeminacy, because if you're what they call a butch homosexual, then I don't think this would happen, because what would they see? What, what signs, what tokens would they We should point out be? a butch homosexual, one who appears to be masculine in every way, whereas you are a feminine homosexual. That's right. And this is not only in my appearance, it's in my voice, and it's in my movements, and it's in my, the, my preferences, my character. It's everywhere. So had you been born female, you just as you are, you'd have had no problem at all, would you? Then I would have had no problem. No problem with other people and no problem with myself, because my life would then have been inevitable. You say problem with yourself. Well, I have obviously got to cope with being an outsider. I obviously have at least some feelings of guilt, because all protest is a kind of guilt. You say you have feelings of guilt? Well, guilt is actually a strong word. Feelings of sin? Not really sin, not really guilt, but feelings of being different, and of certainly not of liking it. Um, I have known homosexuals who thought the whole thing was wonderful and amusing and adventure and so on. I've never liked it. I never want to be on the outside. I never wanted to be someone whose sex was an object, uh, whose sex was a, a, a subject of discussion. As you say, if I'd been a woman, my sex would not have been the subject of discussion at all. I should never have had to explain myself, defend myself, um, or excuse myself. So this is then your condition or your life or something you've never really been happy with. Oh no, I don't think homosexuals are, are, are really happy. I wouldn't say this. I think they're madly gay. And this itself is a dead giveaway, isn't it? When you say madly gay, you mean act an act, a pretense. Is well, that what you mean by it's madly not, gay? It's, it may be a pretense, but it must be um, a sign of uneasiness, a sign of unrest. If you go to, to a party, I understand there's now a, a show called The Boys in the Band, and this becomes a homosexual party, or is, is a homosexual party, and that it is hysterical. But well, you see, a, this is hysterical and tragic at the same time I saw it. However, that's been criticized by my, my say, more militant young homosexuals in America, or the gay mm. liberationers. That's passe by now. Mm. But now they are saying, I am what I am. It's a, mm. perhaps... Uh, Perhaps now, if you were younger, you'd have might conceivably been a member of this group, you see. Mm. You've gone through an earlier, rougher time. We don't know. I'm asking something else now about, you said guilt earlier. Are you religious? No, I have no religion. I have no religion, and I suppose guilt would be the wrong word, since guilt must um, refer, presumably, to um, trying to win or feeling you've lost the opinion of God. Um, I'm not worried by... Um, theories of God, and I'm not really worried by society. But obviously, if I were totally unworried by it, then a protest would not have been necessary, would it? So it must be that I've had to accept the fact that 
of criticism. I've had to cope with criticism. I haven't been able to ignore it. And this is because I've not been a strong enough character. Because if you were truly strong, you would simply neither confirm nor deny. And this is what I haven't been able to do. When criticised, I protested. And of course, protestation is like a drug. In what manner did you protest? Mean you protest? Well, my, my appearance was one long protest. I had to. F I felt I had to find a way of living as a self-confessed homosexual. Well, I understand that when you shake hands with Mr. Genet, he says and ask him how he is. He replies that he's a pederast, and how are you? <laughs> um, now this well, is, is, is his way of going. Now this on. is interesting. You possibly could have concealed it to some extent, or tried to, but you didn't. You deliberate. You deliberately dressed bizarrely, that bizarre by the standards right. of heterosexual yes. yes, this is right. You could have, the two courses seemed to me to be open, to conceal the way I was, and when people said, are you keen on this girl, or whatever it was, instead of saying, I'm not interested in girls, I could have said, no, or not very. Um, this I didn't do, because it never occurred to me to steer a middle course, and I don't think it does to many people. So you really were asser asserting yourself then? I was assert asserting my right to exist, although homosexual, well, because this was challenged. Well, it sounds to me like it was very courageous rather than a, a, a craven thing to do. Was what you were doing seems to me rather... You are asserting your natural, or as outsiders I would say, unnatural self. This is true, and it began... Now, of course, it's simply a habit, but in a time gone by, it seemed to be something that I absolutely had to do because all the homosexuals I met were down and out prostitutes um, whom I met in the West End in Soho because if you meet respectable homosexuals you don't know because they are jolly careful not to let on to you that they are homosexual or you might drag them down to your level. So you are not ashamed then of your life? Your oh, no, life. I'm not ashamed of my life but then I don't have a very strong sense of shame and um, other people might be ashamed of various things. When I say ashamed, I don't mean you should be. I mean, I mean that sense of shame has not been imposed, even though society tried to impose it on you, you never suffered from it, is what I mean. What did no. you? Um, well, as I say, I must have suffered from something. When, when you mention the word shame, it doesn't seem to fit. But I must have suffered from something, or else I would merely have done neither. I would neither have confirmed nor denied. I would have steered a middle course. And this I didn't do. And this very few people do. You know, you mentioned Genet, and I can't help but think, as I sit in your room, I can't help but think of somehow of a scene out of Samuel Beckett, or certainly out of Harold Pinter. Be the caretaker, or whether it be Crap's last tape, or whatever. Uh, I, I suppose that thought has occurred to you. You've been told that, hasn't, haven't you? Well, I have been told that. And, of course, Mr. Pinter, um, claims that he wrote his first play after seeing this room because he actually came here many many years ago years ago now and um, he says that it's when he saw this room that he decided to write his first play which i believe is called the room though i've never actually seen it and um, yes it's true i'm now mo the reason why i've now become i've come out into the open as it were i've come onto the market in some way is because this is the age of recorded degradation. Would you mind expanding on that? The age of recorded degradation? Yes. You see, first, immediately after the war, we had at least a decade of recorded suffering, didn't we? We had people with no um, fingernails and no toenails who explaining how they'd lived in a cell only big enough to stand up in for years and years. And the press couldn't wait to get hold of this. They couldn't wait to, to, to enlarge upon these terrible tortures, these imprisonments, the, the gas chambers, and, and so on. And then that seemed not to be enough because the press got used to it and the, the, the readers got used to it. The things you now read in the press or see on television would not have been allowed when I was young. They would have said, I know this happened, I know these people were burnt to death, but keep it quiet. You cannot show this. You can write a little paragraph reporting that this has happened. You can't enlarge on it. But now the, the public has got so used to suffering and s visual suffering, actually see it, seeing it on television, that this is not enough. So we now have to move on to degradation. It's necessary for not the physical suffering is not enough. You have to have physical degradation and preferably moral degradation. And this is where I've come out into the open because my life is one long 
piece of degradation. And at one time, everyone would have done anything to keep it quiet. But this has now changed. Taste has changed. And now they want to know how degraded you are. And therefore, the press will speak to me, write me up, and television will interview me. And this is because they know they can get from me an unvarnished story, which is full of... Hum it's, it's one long defeat. You're about to say humiliation, weren't you? Yes. Humiliation, defeat, degradation. But of course, if you can accept enough of it, you're then absolutely free. When you can't sink any lower, then you're absolutely free. And this, funnily enough, the young people of today don't want. Because when there was a thing on television about the snooper society, which showed you the ways in which the government could find out facts about you, I went to a seminar which only consisted of young art students, and I said, wouldn't it be a good idea if instead of trying to re impose restrictive measures on the government, which is impossible, wouldn't it be a better idea if you became the kind of people whom no amount of indiscretion can, can defeat. Isn't it the fact, though, you've said something that fascinates me very much. I'm thinking about you and the young, Mr. Crisp, Quentin Crisp. Don't you think that they have a point in not accepting humiliation, just as you, by the very nature of your life, were compelled to? And they say, we will not accept this humiliation. See, isn't this where you and they, at this moment, through nobody's fault, your life experience differs from theirs? Mm. This is true. Now, what I offer them is a, a way of acceptance, because this is foolproof. Now, trying to impose restrictive measures on a government is not going to work, because they are not dealing with the government. They are dealing with the machines, and machines are stronger than people. If you don't believe that, cast your mind back to the atom bomb. It wasn't invented by a fanatic trying to bring the vengeance of God onto a wicked world. It was invented by a marvellous man with a high forehead, sitting in the middle of an Arizona desert, cutting up the atom bomb and saying, pity? Well, this is absolutely absurd. It's the same way with the moon. Everyone says, why do we need the moon? But the fact is you will be dragged there by the rockets. And I assure you that if machines come into existence, which will tabulate all the relative information uh, about everyone in the British House and get into a room the size of this, it will be done, even if the filing cabinets are being rat rattled by people who say, this is a great mistake. It will still be done. So ah. the other way is the easy way. Ah, Mr. Crisp, go ahead. Accept total degradation. That's Let them say everything. And therefore you cannot be defeated. You cannot then be defeated. But then what are you? You see, you have had an unhappy time. You yes. have, obviously mm. you have. And they say, why must man suffer this lot, the younger saying, who, by the way, may I say, would respect you very much had they known you, would respect you very much. I'm not talking about the poor callers. Therefore they say, we will not accept this. Don't you think that there's something hopeful in that? You think I think there's something misguided. Um, uh, I don't think it's hopeful because they can't win. And I don't think it's wise for that same reason. You see, once you, you've accepted this, uh, this humiliation, once you can't get any lower, you are absolutely free. Are you saying a slave is free? Yes. Once you've accepted your slavery, you're not free while you're fighting against it. But once you've accepted your slavery, you've nothing to lose. Are there no chains to break? There need be no chains to break. You just wear your chains. Well, that perhaps is the difference then, isn't it? While you're pulling at them, you're hurting your wrists. But once you've given that up, you're free within yourself, because what is freedom? It has to be inside you. It can't be on the outside. Free to what? Total freedom doesn't exist. Just, just the young people of today speak of the revolution. Now, the worrying thing about that is not the word revolution, but the word the. Because there will be no revolution in that sense. There will be no sudden moment at which everything changes. Revolution is a perpetual process. Beyond the horizon are other horizons. If you don't believe this, look at even the Russian Revolution. They threw over heartless rulers and took on bloody-minded oppressors. So that this is a proof that revolution is useless. Then you're accepting, let me understand this, you're accepting slavery then as the perpetual state of man. You accept slavery, and when we're all slaves, and we all shall be, it won't make no difference, will it? What do you believe in? I believe in absolutely nothing. I can't afford to. 
Because I may have to change at any moment. Ah, wait a minute. Why can't you afford to? Because I'm the weakest person. The strong can say they believe. But the weak must accept everything. I must change my opinions every week if necessary. But if you were weak, why would you deliberately, deliberately put on those bizarre costumes and put on makeup and lipstick and walk down the streets? If you were weak, you wouldn't do that, would you? Well, I was, of course, stronger when I was younger. And um, as I say, when I began, I didn't know how tough it was going to be. I thought, oh, people may shout at me, but I didn't realize that I would actually be beaten up and, and, and fairly constantly. Um, this is due to several things. One, I was so poor that I had to live in the poor parts of London, where everything is tougher. And this means that you get more beaten up, more often. Also, um, I think the fact that I am doing it, not merely doing it, but, be, but I'm seen to be doing it deliberately, defi defying them, protesting, I think this annoyed them more than the mere fact of my being homosexual. Because a lot of people who beat you up are quite used to homosexuals, especially nowadays. They don't like protesting homosexuals. So therefore you were a protester. Mm. And being a protester, you were protesting chains you were forced to wear. So indeed then, you were pulling at your chains, weren't you? I was pulling at my chains and I now know this was a great mistake. All I needed to do was neither to confirm or deny. Nearly everybody who is a revolution revolutionary, a rebel, a protester, has in fact accepted the criticism passed upon him. A man like Mr. Wilde thought he was being revolutionary by merely inventing paradoxes which reversed Victorian standards. But he, the very fact that he so adored the idea of vice and sin shows that he was a Victorian. Because he considered it vice and sin? He, because he thought there was a difference between sin and virtue, whereas we now know there's none. I suppose you yourself have been compared at times with Oscar Wilde, haven't you? Yes, I have often indeed. Um, this I can't quite understand because it's obvious that Mr. Wilde was a part-time homosexual. He had a wife, he had children. Therefore, his life was obviously an endeavor to live the exotic life. He, even his homosexual relationships, he conducted as though they were normal. He took these boys that he met to expensive private rooms in hotels. This is absolutely weird from a, from a homosexual's point of view. Now, I, was thinking, I wasn't thinking so much of the sexual habits so much as the idea that a certain man who has a way of looking at life and who is something unique and original. In that sense, I was thinking of the comparison of you and Mr. Wilde. Well, yes, this is true. Um, I can see this. I can't... Um, I uh, attempt the high gloss of the wit and the epigrams that he invented, but I do subscribe to his idea that what matters is how you live rather than how you write. You remember that he, he made this very clear, that what mattered to him was not his writing so much as his way of living, and I feel this too. Um, and I feel it probably more strongly than he did, since now writing has more or less gone out. It ceased to be um, something that anyone would bother to do. Soon now, even the words would have gone. You mean there's a, you feel that writing, you feel now it's recording, is that it? Mm. Visual, yes. you're talking yes. about. Yes. I now think that um, uh, writing has more or less gone out, and soon even the words will have gone out. In Ray Bradbury's movie, there are not even any words over the shops, because people have forgotten how to read. Well, we haven't talked about loneliness, have we? No. Are you? Am I lonely? No, I'm quite often alone, and have been from the, from the beginning. And I like this. I couldn't cope with a life in which I lived with somebody, even if it was my sister, let alone whether it was another man. Because while I'm with people, I'm working at it all the time. And if I live alone, I don't have to do this. It's like going into your dressing room and lying down. And this I have to do from time to time. A lot of people say, isn't your life lonely? And I say, yes, but it's something, one, that it's just as well to accept, but also, I now actually prefer it. Of course, when I was young, I hoped to meet somebody who would cherish me and look after me and admire me and all these things. This never happened, and it never occurred to me that it didn't happen because I wasn't lovable. I assumed that it didn't happen because I was homosexual. And this is a great fault which one must try not to get trapped in. 
when you're peculiar in some way, if you've only got one leg, if you're homosexual, if you're a drunkard, you still mustn't attribute everything that happens to you to this one unique factor, because it may be various other things. How, how does your day go? How, well, the how day, goes the day? Where, uh, in holiday time, which is now, I just get up later, um, do less, I never clean the room, I never mend my clothes, so I really do do absolutely nothing except to the ordinary time fillers that everyone else knows about. Um, I do crossword puzzles, I do chess problems out of the papers, I write to my friends, I ring them up, and I'm an inveterate moviegoer. I have been turned out of the movies, you wouldn't think that could happen, but um, mostly this doesn't happen nowadays, and I go to the movies a lot, and I like um, the high-gloss movies. Uh, I think that's due to my age. What do you mean by high-gloss movies? Well, you know that modern movies are deliberately have a rather frayed look because it makes them more documentary, more like life. And there's a man in England called Ken Loach who says he wants movies to look like the news. Well, this makes him, to me, a wingless creature because I want the news to look like a play. Oh, it's fantasy, then, that you prefer to the reality. Well, I want the whole thing to be. I want them to be one. You see, this is like the difference in virtue and advice. There is no difference now, and I don't want there to be any difference between fantasy and reality. I want the gloss spread everywhere. So when you say gloss, you're talking about uh, what? We're, we're turning over the tape now. Uh, the... Uh, we caught us all unawares. We were listening to Quentin Crisp and his thoughts, and this is done on the on a Ewer portable. And Marty and I turn the tape over. Uh, the uh, I'll explain some play-by-play account. <laughs> See, the, there was a cover on this thing, and we didn't know when it came to an end. Quentin Crisp is my host during this particular conversation in London about a month ago, and. He's talking about his life, but obviously quite more than that. And at the moment, reflecting what seems to come out is, of course, his difference with the younger generation. Mr. Crisp is 61. Mr. Crisp has been an outsider all his life and has lived through a number of changes in habits and customs and outlooks. And the very fact, perhaps to explain, that he's in his room and except for the occasional going out to the grocery store or occasional visit to a movie that he talks about and has talked about, and every now and then watching a television program, he's been removed from society deliberately. We pick up the conversation. Talking to uh, Quentin Crisp, continuing our conversation in your flat, your one-room flat in, in Chelsea on Beaufort Street. Uh, about the movies, what, we talk about fantasy and reality. Yes, well, um, I will see any movie, of course, because I'm an inveterate moviegoer, but I like very carefully planned movies, and I don't think it's necessary to include, from, from my point of view, for my one and ninepence, you don't have to include a lifelike element. I don't mind whether it's lifelike or not, but I want all the words spoken to be significant, I want everyone to look significant, and I want a plot. And this, I think, is true of most people of my generation. And I want this spread over the whole world. I mean, it, it can be in the movies. It's quite easily, at least fairly easily produced. In real life, it's harder to produce. And one of the things which separates me from young people is that uh, is this worship of high gloss. They uh, say of me that I talk for talking's sake. And when I say, what would you want me to do, they have no, no reply. And this I can't understand, because what he's talking for? And unless it's for talking's sake. Otherwise, you only speak when you have some information to impart, which is pretty rarely. The rest of your time is decorating the occasion. So your day, then, let me understand. Do you read? I hardly ever read. I'm now endeavouring to read Bleak House, but it's taken me nearly three months already. So you're catching up with Bleak House now? So I'm catching up with Bleak House, because this is the year of Dickens. Um, and it's wonderful in the sense of the plot. The plot is staggering in... in I know you have a television set here, too. Yes. In the midst of all the yes. debris on the side there. That's right. Um, I have a television set, and I like television. Um, I'm not very interested in the news, 
um, and I'm not very interested in the documentaries, but anything that's old, uh, that's entertainment, old-time movies, um, all in wrestling, Peyton Place, uh, all these things I love because of the gloss. So then it is the world outside that still terrifies you. Well, it doesn't terrify me so much now, of course. Um, it, I would say I'm not now frightened to go out and buy a box of matches, but I might even easily have to rally my forces even to do that. If there's a way of staying in, I'll stay in. But this is partly, of course, laziness. Before I do anything, I think to myself, could I possibly get out of this? And if I could, I do. Um, apart from that, there is the effort I might have to make even to buy a box of matches. I might go into a shop, ask for the matches, this might lead the girl behind the counter to going into the back room to tell her mother and father that I am there and for them to come out and pretend to look for the box of matches in order to see me. I've got to live through all this. I'm not greatly worried by it now, I'm not certainly not wounded or hurt by it, but you, you have to bring a certain amount of consciousness to bear on this. You're aware of these games they played then? I am aware of the games. You can't help being. You simply cannot help it. If you've had a lifetime of really worrying about whether people are following you, um, whether they're threatening you, how many people are following you, whether you're alone in the street, whether it'll be another hundred yards before you get to the main road, if you've had to think about this for a lifetime, you become very, very conscious of other people. Well, now, I'm not really afraid of people. There might be some special circumstances when I would be afraid. Otherwise, I'm merely uh, conscious of them, and I rally my forces to, to meet the occasion, because everything is an occasion. Every, everything is an occasion, you yes. say? If you're eccentric in any way, everything becomes an occasion. And I suppose a, a huge effort, too, does it? And, of course, less effort. Um, because you've got so many of the answers, so many of the attitudes already, you're doing them automatically. It's, um, if you're taught good manners very early in life, um, you've got the fact of opening doors for other people uh, so ready that you don't have to think about it at all, you've already done it. And in the same way, if you're eccentric, you know how to deal with people to a large extent. They still might surprise me, but they'd have an awful job to now. I'm thinking going out to buy that box of matches because of the games these so-called mm. normal people play with you. The girl going, take a look who's out there. Mm -hmm. There he is. It is. I can't help but think of effort, you know, Samuel, one of Samuel Beckett's plays, Endgame, and uh, waiting for you to over that, but you know, the effort, the very effort of living itself. Mm -hmm. In your case, it's almost in, in extremis. Mm. That's right. Um, I live more consciously than a great number of people. Almost nothing to me is a habit that takes place outside. I have habits which I go through in my room when I'm alone. This means that as there's more demand outside, I need more rest, more relaxation, a more effortless life inside. Um, when on the Mr. Mitchell's television program I said I was waiting for death, uh, any number of people rang me up and said, this is terrible. And I said, well, what are you waiting for? And they said, well, I have too much to do to think about death. Well. This is also no good. If you're filling your life with events in order not to think about death, it would be better to think about it and get ready for it now. Does that thought obsess you? No, it doesn't obsess me, but it is true. I don't expect anything new from my life now. And this is because I've done and said and been the things that I can do and say and be. If I hadn't, then I would still be waiting for the occasion to arise when I could um, express some more of myself. But Replies like, why don't you go to China, or why don't you write a novel, are a waste of time because I would still have my dreary self with me, even if I were in China. Don't you like yourself? Well, I accept myself. Um, I think you have to do that very, very early. Before you can deal with anybody, you've got to have accepted your limitations. Um, of course, this leads to you actually reveling in your limitations. This is almost always the next step. Um, this I try not to do, but of course I am conscious of doing it from time to time. Um, the squalor of my room really needs no comment, but occasionally, of course, I do actually uh, inflict it on people. That is to say, I make them conscious of it. And this is quite unnecessary, and um, if I catch myself doing it, I, ask, I give it up at once. I think it's chiefly that you've got to accept who you are, and the trouble for young people is that the opportunities are so great 
that they never make up their minds what they want. And if you never make up your mind what you want, you never make up your mind who you are. That's true, Mr. Crisp, but I'm, I can't help but think that's true. They're, they're torn with many choices or perhaps lack of choice with a bomb overhead. At the same time, the great difference, if I may suggest, between you and many of the young is you have accepted your humiliation mm. as a way of life. You, you say, this is the salvation. Mm. Whereas they say, no, this is the degradation, mm. they will say. We will not accept the humiliation. I think of the Depression. You've heard of the, the British mm. Depression that mm. you remember. Yes. Uh, many, most people accepted it. And thus, that is another subject. Perhaps we'll pick up with Mr. Crisp on that. The conversation nearly closed. He spoke there of a humiliation accepted by the great men, no matter who they were, as a matter of course. Uh, the poverty, the unemployment, as a matter of course. This is during another adventure of mine, talking to people, British survivors of the Depression. You've been listening to a conversation with a man named Quentin Crisp. <laughs>